0: Glorious rain, Dave. We had we had glorious, glorious wet rain all night last night. In Austin. In Austin. It was delightful. Outside. It was outside. The water was outside instead of inside. It was wow. delightful. It was delightful. Wow. Wow. That's not, that doesn't happen often. It not anywhere near as often as it should. Yeah, uh, I think someone told me that the uh, one of the big rivers in town is actually thirty feet below the level where it's supposed to be. Mm. Um, yeah, we're in a stage two drought out here, but we had rain last night and it was wonderful. So thank you, thank you, the <laughs> thank you Hurricane Ingrid, uh, who yes. is who is apparently not named after my wife. Right. Yes her great to her disappointment although she did enjoy the uh the headlines yesterday um so uh ingrid uh ingrid collapses on mexican coast i think was one of her favorite
1: <laughs> i saw that I, I like that
0: uh how was your week
1: it was good good i i uh over the weekend in the spirit of looking for strange things in ohio um uh from the other episode about mike tyson and don king i uh rode my motorcycle past a uh, abandoned amusement park uh so um which creepy. is pretty cool yeah Cre- it, it's one of those it's yeah i don't know if, if you saw the links that i put in but it you check it out in the show notes but it's uh it's all gated off and and you can't get in there without um getting arrested uh so i didn't bother and it's it's pretty hard to be stealth on a like a big motorcycle you know, trying to <laughs> and then you have it's a very residential sort of neighborhood and you're like you know who's this guy so um but th- there are lots of pictures on the internet where it's it's really like dystopian um as far as uh like the uh, like ferris wheel with all kind of o- overgrowth on top of it and it's falling apart and, and stuff like that it's, it's pretty fascinating
0: yeah a little, little bit of Chernobyl right there in Chippewa Lake Ohio
1: yeah yeah cool yeah so how about you? Outside of getting uh, rained on,
0: I don't know if you're like me, get into these like media ruts where uh, like I'll listen to the same album uh, over and over again for for weeks. Um, and I'm I'm in I'm in a, kind of a rut with the movie right now. I'm watching Dark Knight Rises a lot, uh, mm. and I don't really know why. Like maybe it's, uh, oh, it's some way of like processing September 11th. Um, so close to the anniversary, maybe um, you know, something about it uh, is really resonating with me and. Although it's interesting to watch it, uh, and in fact, to watch the whole Dark Knight series now, um, especially in light of the number of antiheroes that we have uh, available to us in uh, popular television shows and movies. Um, I'm starting Mm -hmm. to wish, you know, uh, the whole Dark Knight series, uh, Batman, listen, now we're a comics podcast, you know, the whole whole Dark Knight series is about um, Batman as this, well, antihero, right? Uh, He's... Almost indistinguishable from from the villains that he's that he's battling. Um, you know, in a lot of ways, he's you know just a total sociopath. Um, yes. And you know, put that alongside uh, Walter White from Breaking Bad, um, and suddenly Dark Knight seems a lot less uh, a lot less of an antihero. It kind of dilutes the message a little bit. And now, so now I'm watching these Dark Knight movies, and now wishing that the Dark Knight was actually even darker. Right? I want him. I want him totally depraved. Um, yeah it's, it's interesting kind of Ben Affleck yeah like Ben Affleck oh god what a terrible idea alright let's, <laughs> right, let's let's so, talk so
1: who's your favorite Batman uh,
0: you know it's funny Is I, I well, as much as I enjoy the movies I don't really enjoy any of the Batman very much um, I, I, I have problems with each of them well, each for different reasons um, as if anybody cared uh, but probably Christian Bale is probably my favorite uh, being the yeah. darkest the darkest of the Dark Knights right yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. Anyway, let's talk about something else before we, before we lose our, (laughs) before we lose the entire audience to our comments podcast. Um, all right. Uh, so what are we, what are we talking about this week, Dave?
1: So let's see. We, we have, uh, Axiom as your personal data custodian, Mm -hmm. um, TSA and their love for the rich and, uh, the hack
0: reactor. Hack reactor sounds awesome. Yeah. I can't wait to a hack reactor. Yeah. That's cool. That's I think I have their first album, um, hack reactor. <laughs> <Nice>. <laughs> That's great. Um, so where, do, where do folks, uh, where do folks go if they want to see photos of, uh, of the dystopian future of Chippewa Lake, Ohio?
1: Um, they need to go to DG show.org. So D's and Dave G's and Gunner show.org.
0: Nice. And, uh, let's see some stuff that ended up on the cutting room floor. We got some follow up from my mother, um, mm-hmm. ways of, uh, Citing Twitter, uh, citing your toots on Twitter, um, some soldering, and superheroes. Things that start with the letter S. And and an alliterative uh, set of cutting room floor topics this week. Yeah, cool. Uh, So, Dave, you ready for the uh, Windows XP apocalypse? Yes.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Do you do you have a countdown clock uh, for it?
0: Oh, it's coming up. Oh, I thought I I think about the Windows XP apocalypse and I think about its launch date.
1: Oh. <laughs> yeah. No, I I didn't mind Windows XP as much compared to other Windows operating systems. It was it was pretty useful. Um mm-hmm. but it's it's like done on April 8th uh 2014. So, you know, mark your calendar uh, cuz no patches will be coming out. And um one of the podcasts that I I listen to when when not listening to the Dave and Gunnar show is uh Security Now. Um which, you know, it talks about things like that and other security things. And uh, um, one of the things that they brought up was that there are a lot of people that are embargoing uh, flaws for Windows XP and holding them back until after April 8th, 2014. And and then that way, like all the XP machines are out there, there will be no fix for them um, outside of upgrading them. Um, so that I thought that was pretty interesting.
0: Yeah, it's amazing. i Yeah, this is always a problem with proprietary software, right? Is that once the vendor abandons it, there is no way to fix it, right? Yeah, yeah. But I don't think this has ever happened at a scale. Windows XP is a massive install base, Uh, and even though people have been migrating away from it for what I presume to be years, there since before it
1: launched. Yeah.
0: (laughs) Well, there has to. I mean, there are still millions of Windows XP installations out there. I'm sure. Mm -hmm. Uh, And never mind the pirated copies. Yep. Uh, which haven't which probably haven't been accounted for uh, that 's going to be it's going to be that's going be huge yeah it 's like a field day yeah
1: yeah and then um and i i know when I mentioned the security now podcast, you were sort of like oh i don 't like that which surprised me um but um but what what are what are your thoughts on that podcast
0: oh yeah no it's it well it's a very useful podcast um but It it's not hitting the level at which I think I would need it to hit. Um, Just I'm a relatively technical listener. The target audience for the podcast is people who are uh, only glancingly familiar with a lot of this stuff. Um, Mm -hmm. And there are some interesting topics which come up, right? Like the Windows XP, uh, the embargoed security, uh, uh, the embargoed exploits for for Windows XP. Um, And not to say that I'm a genius or that I'm. I know everything I need to know about security, but I find the his exp, his what he provides is explanations of security issues that are very basic and and accessible to like the layperson. Um mm-hmm. and I you know, I I don't need to devote 45 minutes of my life every week to to that, right? I yeah. got I got other things I want to listen to, so. Um but no he's but he's he's great. He's been doing it for years. I mean, they they've done like 400 episodes, over 400 episodes. Yep yeah
1: yeah and and i I actually like it for that reason where they he'll take something and and boil it down for the laban um which helps me with with uh whenever i craft my messages and also um he he comes from a windows perspective as well which mm-hmm. you know it's it helps balance things out and 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 i understand where people are coming from and and pain points that that people have that I may not experience directly, so I, I find that helpful. Oh,
0: I got you. So you're like, uh, you're meta-listening. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. yeah cool.
1: Yeah. And, and one of the other things that came up on that show was uh, um, there is one of the things that I thought, there's there's a couple things that scare me. And so, like, Yahoo is retiring identities of people that haven't logged in for a while. And I, I guess you <laughs> right. could, I don't know, pay $1.99 to... Um, reserve, you know, whenever my email ad- address expires and all that. And um, and then once it expires and it's up for grabs, you'll get a notification and say, hey, if you want to grab it, you can go ahead and take it. And the thing that I worry about is that, and so I'm like, all right, well, I'll, I'll go over to my Yahoo account. I haven't logged in here in a long time. And I found um, that I still am getting stuff from my Yahoo mail from things that I even switched over to my Gmail account. Um which is like crazy. Like like I'll get stuff from eBay even though I changed my my email uh preferences to point to Gmail, I still get stuff from them like in like transaction stuff, not like newsletters or anything but actual like real e-commerce things, uh, which surprised oh. me. Oh, that is surprising. Yeah. And and so you know, I think that that's, you know, a lot of times your email address is thought of as your identity, and that's the thing that you have and you protect. And then down the road, if my Yahoo account expires, well, somebody else could potentially steal my identity or do like a password reset for something that I may not have, have registered, and then they could start slowly taking over, um, you know, services that, that I use, which is kind of frightening.
0: Yeah, yeah. You, you may be through with the past, but the past is not through with you. Yeah, yeah. So how do you, I can, you know, it's funny, when I when I moved to, uh, I'm using 1Password to manage my passwords now uh, because mm-hmm. I was not managing my passwords in the past. Um, and I think we've talked about this before, where I started using 1Password and, suddenly, and discovered that I had like 700 online accounts um, mm-hmm. scattered around. I mean, tremendous. So how? But I'm sure that there are username and password that I haven't accounted for and that are not in 1Password because I created the account. Fifteen years ago, um, and have long since forgotten about it. Right? Um, mm-hmm. How would I know if I've if I've registered at a at all these all these sites that I've forgotten about? Like, is there any way to go back and find them?
1: Well, there's. Um, I know that there's a one website. It's called Knowem, uh, mm-hmm. and it, it'll track down like all the sites that you've registered a username against, or maybe if you wanted to. Maybe you know, like you don't even have to put your username in. You could put in my username. Um yeah, So yeah. this is something the bad guy could use. Yeah, totally. Um, so it's a nice convenient thing where it's like I could plug in David X, and and then it'll look on like 50 websites to see if David X has been registered. And then and then if not, it, it, there's a click box that'll allow me to register that name. Um, and then people could uh, potentially impersonate me, um, which is uh, frightening. And and yeah,
0: so it's kind of scary. Yeah, that's no good. Um, it was, you know, oh God, uh, if only there was a single organization that was, like, accumulating all this information and taking care of it for me. Uh, mm-hmm. That seems like a service I would happily pay for. I
1: could, I could, you might even be able to get this for free. Oh, really? Yeah. Tell me yeah. more. Yeah, so there's uh, Axiom, um, where they have a new website, that allows you, like, with all the, so you you know who Axiom is, right? They they basically collect all this information, and, and it's more than just the web stuff. Mm-hmm. This is like, you know, a oh, grocery store or a credit card or anything that they can get information from. They'll build a database for you, and, oh, and then nice, they nice.
0: And then they sell the information, and it's like marketing data for other companies. Mm-hmm. Okay, right. right.
1: Exactly. So they could target you with, whether it's ads or mailings or... Um Governments or whatever yes <laughs> and and so um, but it, they have a new feature that is great. You can go ahead and you could try this out where all you have to do is give them your name, address, birth date, and last four digits of your social security number, and then you'll be able to verify that the information it's collecting is
0: accurate. oh, is that all oh so so yeah. there're so there's six what six they're five digits away from opening up credit cards in your name as well. <laughs> yeah yeah that yeah. sounds handy um you know i saw the news about about them opening this i was like why would they bother going through this list? and there's actually the and it's for them going through the expense and the and the pain of standing up a service like this when there's no obvious money at the other end i mean it makes sense for two reasons right one is to make sure the better the data is um the more valuable it is for them right um, yes so it, it is in their interest to make sure that a lot of this stuff is accurate, uh, because it means that the services that they provide to these marketing services are, are more valuable. But I was thinking it's also a pretty cunning move um, in terms of data, you know data privacy and uh, you know especially with the Snowden news that I mean, people are now suddenly a lot more sensitive to how not only the government but also how the private sector is handling people's data and by providing a service like this, which ostensibly gives c- consumers much more control over the, over the data that they have, mm-hmm. um, is a way of avoiding regulation, right? This is like a classic, uh, this is like a classic move, right? If, uh, if Congress doesn't like, or is nervous about something an industry is doing, the industry will start up, uh, its own effort to kind of regulate itself uh, to prevent Congress from having to pass a law, right? Because uh, it's right. much much better to be regulating yourself than to have the government regulating you. Um, and so, I have to assume that uh, providing this kind of a service allows the Axiom lobbyists to go to the hill and say, "Well, nope, there's no need for data privacy regulation. See, we provide the service to consumers, so they have to, all the control they need over the over the data that we've collected about them." Um, interesting.
1: Yeah, and also, I would imagine that if they were selling the data. Mm-hmm. the data that has been validated by somebody yes. could even be worth
0: more. Yes. Yeah. 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 That's what I was saying. Yeah. hmm
1: So you're going to give them your birth date, social security number, and all that and
0: verify? Uh, absolutely not. Under no circumstances. Yeah. I'm still, yeah. I'm still, I'm the guy that still calls when people ask for your social security number. I'm still the guy that calls them up on the phone instead of writing it down. Um, so there's, mm-hmm. there's no chance that I'm going to be, providing all of that information to, uh, to Axiom. I mean, there has to be a better way to authenticate people. Um, yes, you know, Mother's
1: know, maiden name. <laughs> that's right.
0: Well, you know, it's funny. I think a lot about the national ID, right? Um, you know, people, I don't know, if you've, I don't know if you've ever read about when the social security numbers came out, people completely mm-hmm. flipped Um, because they felt like, well, now the government can count everyone, now they're going to round them all up in FEMA camps, and, you know, it becomes this... You get the
1: chip implant for buying and selling.
0: Yeah, exactly. Uh Um, But I think not having a national ID forces companies like Axiom to request stuff like name, address, birthdate, and the last four of your social, um, because that's the only way to ensure, even though it's not great and it's flawed for a bunch of reasons, it's the only way they have to... Uh, match up a person with with the records that they've got. Um, yeah. Whereas if there was a national ID, um, it I don't know if it actually solves the problem, but certainly moves the problem uh, so that at least there's this like government-regulated method of identification. Um, from what I understand, it's being used successfully in like South Korea. Um, hmm. You know, they have a national ID um, which you can use you know to go access your bank account, stuff like that. Um, hmm. I suspect there's a lot less. Well, I, I have no reason to think this, but I guess the hope would be that if you have a national ID in place uh, that the private sector can use to authenticate people, that you would have less risk of data leakage. Mm-hmm. Um, certainly, less private information passing between parties. Would mm-hmm. it be interesting? Yeah. I wonder, I wonder if anybody's done a study about that. Well,
1: yeah. Well, and also it's very similar to like, do you do whenever you go to a website and there's the option to authenticate with Google versus creating an account yourself or Facebook or Twitter or whatever, do you, do you prefer to create a new account or do you, which is another thing to manage, or do you prefer to delegate
0: the oh, authentication
1: yeah. to, uh, uh, like say Google.
0: That's a good question. I, uh, I, I tend not to use those services at all because it's basically free marketing data to those other companies. Um, and I don't, So I, as I say, I use the one password application to manage all these accounts. So I'm actually Mm -hmm. not incurring that great a risk, um, by, uh, by adding another account to the portfolio, right? Mm -hmm. There's the, the transaction costs, I guess you could say, aren't, aren't that great. Um, and by not using it, if I were to use that service, then I've just announced to Google that I'm using Tumblr or whatever. Um, Mm -hmm. and Google has no business knowing that I'm using Tumblr. Um, so uh So, I prefer not to give them that information um, mm-hmm. uh, especially since what i 'm getting back in return is something that 's not that valuable to me anyway which is the which is the one click uh mm-hmm. authentication so yeah so no though there 's a long way of saying no i don't use it i don't use that service
1: How about you um in some cases, I do like if it 's almost like a burner sort of uh account like mm-hmm. to me it 's like do I want to create yet another account? that I need to keep track of or worry about getting lost where mm-hmm. I, I could chop off access anytime I want from essentially from like, uh, from Google. Yeah. 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 Hmm. And so in- And also passwords don't exchange hands and, um, things like that.
0: You know, it's, you know, it's funny the, I think about all of these decisions that, you and, I, you, know, you and I think about this stuff all the time and the amount of brain power it requires in the average day to make the tens of thousands of tiny decisions that constitute like a safe or mm-hmm. a sensible kind of data privacy, like your own personal data privacy policy. It's mm-hmm. just amazing the number of questions that we have to ask ourselves today that we, that we were never confronted with even you know, five, ten years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, it just—it's yep. so complicated, and it gets so complicated so quickly. Um, you know, there's no hope that somebody who isn't kind of intimately involved in the web or the, or the IT industry can actually make a fully informed decision about a lot of this stuff.
1: Yeah. Oh, I agree. And you know, I—I I wonder in the same way that passwords are becoming less and less useful, like even usernames for like email addresses, which is why uh, Yahoo is retiring. Um, accounts to free up like non-crazy usernames Mm -hmm. because they've been pretty much exhausting exhausting them like whatever at yahoo.com
0: yeah well the punchline to this is um it's not as if uh, yahoo has a line of people out the door waiting for yahoo accounts right Um, right (laughs) uh, i was thinking about the uh you know Yahoo's sending reminders to people like, "Hey, you still have a Yahoo account? do you want to keep it open and I imagine they have to like buy their own pipe to Google so that they can send all of that email to gmail right, and so, right. <laughs> like like a non trivial portion of internet traffic is actually Yahoo notices to Gmail users that they still have a yahoo account yep uh funny yep. um let's see once well, talking about the complexity of this um it, you reminded me about the uh, Matt Honan's um, catastrophic experience uh, with yes. all of these kind of interlocking decisions, right? Um, mm-hmm. It was, oh, where did it, so he had, he had this like cascading set of failures that led to basically his whole digital life being taken over. Um, yep. And I'm, uh, how did it start? Uh, do, do you remember the, do you remember the story?
1: Well, it was, I guess his uh, Google account was taken over
0: and then it was like deleted.
1: And then, um, then they got his Twitter account and, and so basically once once his Google account was taken over, you know, think about that. It, you're, like, whenever it's, like, you forget your password um, and then you do, like, a password reset, what it'll do is it'll send a one-time password reset link to your um, email account. Mm-hmm. So if you compromise your email account, then everything should be, you know, it's, like, that's one way to get uh, compromised on a whole lot of sites. And I, I think that's what happened with his... Uh, apple id and then um and not only did did it get into you know did he get into or did the attacker get into his app uh apple account um it sent remote wipes out to his laptops and iphones and all that so you you can i mean that's like a whole movie you know it's <laughs> yeah. like will smith getting his phone wiped or right. keanu reeves or somebody and it's a whoa you know and it's like wiped out that's amazing
0: that's totally amazing and terrifying yep um and so yeah i to, to, to actually tell that story when when people uh when people say like oh well you know nobody's interested in my twitter account um, yep. well actually doesn't matter if they're you know they don't maybe they don't care about taking over your twitter account but they can certainly use your twitter account as a lily pad in the you know leap towards compromising other accounts um, yes yeah
1: exactly yup i um, got, got some good news oh you did yeah, yeah, it's awesome cloud service that will allow you to convert um, basically uh, from one format to another format. Tell me more. Yeah, so it's it's a cloud-based service where you give them a document, mm-hmm. um, like a PDF file, or, or let's say a Word doc, and then uh, you can convert it to uh, a PDF or or a text file or or whatever format you want.
0: Oh, fun! That yeah. sounds great. That's that sounds very useful. So, what's the catch?
1: Um, there is no catch. I don't know if there is a catch, but to me, it's, <laughs> it's, it's scary because well, but, but their website does say, "Don't worry, your files are safe, and no one else can access them."
0: Oh okay. And All
1: right. Yeah, so problem solved, um, and, and the files will be deleted as soon as the conversion' is finished. Um, but to me, it's like that's an awesome like honeypot right? Oh, yeah. Any sort of like, oh, this is really convenient. I could, I could send that business plan up to, uh, you know, uh, up to whatever and, and have it, you know, converted. Um, and well, wow, we'll keep a copy and use that for ourselves. So, you know, if you want to send up like birth certificates or a list, your, your list of favorite social security numbers and all that, <laughs> you know, it's kind of, you know, it's like, it it i saw it, it was a life hacker article and it's like oh wow this is really great this is convenient but i don't think people fully think through the security ramifications of of that of yeah. you know leaving stuff around yeah. um, but the other thing that i found interesting is whenever you go to their website um it says uh, at the very bottom it says copyright uh 2013 luna web limited
0: made in munich germany huh i wonder well, it's interesting. It makes me think that they're actually hosted in Munich, or in and so, the German data privacy laws are actually pretty good. Um, it wouldn't keep you away from the German intelligence services, but uh, mm. but the but otherwise, I guess the privacy laws are, are pretty good. Although they say "made in," not necessarily hosted in. Right. Interesting. Well, and and well, and maybe
1: if he's maybe that's just uh, you know again maybe for layman uh, layman purposes they'd say made in for simplicity but mm-hmm. I, I noticed there were other websites that were very similar where um it would say at the footer oh made in uh luxembourg or you know made in belgium mm-hmm. um which i'm um, i have just recently noticed that trend where people are saying that oh this stuff is made in um europe or wherever right
0: and 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 uh, as a way of saying not in the united states Yes, and not China, right? Yeah.
1: Which again, it's like your files are safe and no one else can access them. And it's you know, to me it's like if somebody's saying that just because it it's like oh well, it's, you know, outside the reach of one intelligence agency doesn't mean that it's outside the reach of another.
0: Yeah. Just so. Mm-hmm. Uh okay. Um let's talk about something let's talk about something we love. Yes. Yes, TSA PreCheck.
1: It's coming to Akron. Oh my god, so exciting! Yeah, it's going to be like the Jetsons.
0: It's, it's, it is literally going to be like the Jetsons. You'll stand on the on the, the moving walkway, um, mm-hmm. and you just pass right through security. It's I, I, I say this all the time. It's like traveling in 1986. It's beautiful. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um. So how did you get uh, how did you get into PreCheck?
1: Uh, through um through the airline. Um they, they said, well, hey, since you're a val- uh, valued frequent flyer, we will uh, get you in. And it was it was when it first started, it kicked off. Because uh-huh. I, I guess they wanted to start with, I guess, logically, the frequent travelers, the, uh, the 80-20 rule of, of, well, let's, you know, the people that fly the most would probably, um, you know, it's like that would be the, the largest amount of traffic that would be going through. Mm-hmm. Um, TSA, as opposed to the person that may fly once every five years,
0: and also the ones um, least likely to do anything crazy because they've flown for so long and not blown themselves up, right? Right. Yes. Yeah. yeah. True.
1: Yeah.
0: Um, so the but no you found so you, so you can get to it like the airline can recommend you um, as I got through the same way. Um, mm-hmm. You can join the global entry program. Um, or the Mm -hmm. trusted traveler program where you actually like they fingerprint you and they ID you, um, for speeding you through customs, but you could, but once you're enrolled in global entry, you can also enroll yourself in pre-check, um, since you've got the background check and all the other stuff. Um, and then, uh, but another way to do it is just to like straight up, uh, well, I guess you can, so you can pay your way into it. Right. Right. Yeah. It's like 85 bucks for five years. Right, and so you read this, you found this article, I guess, it's on Boing Boing about how this is actually going to make TSA screening worse. Yeah,
1: yeah, and it's and it basically it was a sort of a rant on the the one percent and the the people that you know it's like the rich fat cats are you know benefiting while the poor schlubs are um, the, the rabble um, have to have their uh, rights violated and all that. Um, right, it's kind of a Yeah. What what did you think about that?
0: Uh, Well, you know, I'm sitting, (laughs) I'm able to comment on this from the lofty height of uh, being in pre-check myself um, and presumably, you know, now I'm, so I guess I'm in the 1% now. Uh, Mm -hmm. This idea that, uh, so first of all, there are plenty of things wrong with the TSA. Um, Mm -hmm. The pre-check program, I don't think is one of them. I think it makes, from a security point of view, I think it makes perfect sense to take, uh, a set of people who are trusted. I know they use the term trusted travelers, take a set of people, break them off and treat them differently than people who you know less about. Um, yes. That just makes that just manifestly. That makes sense. Right. Um, because you can't screen everybody. Right. So let's go, let's take the people we know and go put them over here and take the people we don't know and, and put them in this line that, that kind of discrimination uh, I think, it's just obvious on its face that that would make, that's a sensible thing to do given that you have limited resources. Mm-hmm. Um, but now it, I think using the, I'm looking at the phraseology here is that like increasing the rich people, rich people can opt out of the worst TSA treatment by buying voluntary background checks and bypassing the rigmarole of the plebs. Like, okay, so now it's, now it's a class war, right? Um, yes. because this person doesn't like price discrimination. Oh, um, <laughs> this, this, uh, I, I don't understand how, um, if you are flying in airplanes, uh, frequently enough where pre-check actually makes a difference for you, that $85 is going to, uh, is going to, is going to break the bank. And by the way, you don't even have to pay the 85 bucks, right? Um, you can, uh, you still, if you fly frequently enough where this, uh, this matters, um, you can get it through the airline, right? Yep. Um,
1: yeah. yeah. And I did the math. It's like for five years, $85 is $17 a year. And mm -hmm. a lot of airlines, they charge you $25 just to check a bag once.
0: Yeah. And it's a little, it's also a little bit like saying, well, um, you know, us plebs have to take the bus and all you fancy folks have to get to take airplanes. Um, Mm -hmm. so, you know, we got to sit here on a five hour bus trips and you can fly through the air in your fancy airplanes for 45 minutes and, and arrive at the destination. I mean, Yes. Like if you want better service, if you want a different or a higher quality of service, you then pay more money for it. Um, yep. I don't see, I don't see anything, you know, the, <laughs> if you're a, if you're opposed to capitalism, uh, I guess I can't help you. Um, mm-hmm. but, but I mean, it doesn't seem, this doesn't seem like so odious, uh, uh, so odious a burden. Um, that it should be that we should be invoking words like the rich the one percent, the plebes uh it just seemed <laughs> like it just seemed ridiculous
1: yeah and and again it 's like i don 't think that eighty five dollars for five years is excessive if you no. fly enough to make it worthwhile mm-hmm. and it 's really not um you know when 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 you factor all that in, and the other thing too is that you are you know it's the way the article was positioned is that um, the rich people don't have to give up their rights where what, what the reality is is that if you sign up for pre-check, you're actually volunteering to have background checks done on you, right? Yeah, yeah, that's right. So you are actually paying $85 to give up some of your rights, or if you do global entry, you get fingerprinted. Yes. Um, and so you you are giving up some of your rights for um, for uh, you know convenience, I
0: guess. Mm-hmm. Yep. That's right. Um, and if, uh, as an American citizen, if you, uh, if that's a trade that you are willing to make, uh, you should be totally free to make that trade. Um, mm-hmm.
1: yeah. Uh, well, and also the, with the, the $85, I think that having a nominal fee in there will help separate a lot of like, if it was free and available for everybody, the person that flies maybe once every five years, you're going to have, you know, the entire system flooded of you know of doing background checks and, and that, that ultimate cost of doing all the background checks and profiling people and keeping up on all that, that would be humongous. Mm-hmm. Um, and so by putting in a, a fee as sort of like a, a gate that somebody that really is interested in this would want to participate, I think is a nice way to um, not only manage, uh, manage the, the, the demand, but also to um, um Prevent the, the the cost would be probably a lot more than eighty five dollars if everybody on you know in the country wanted to sign up for pre check.
0: Yeah, that's right. Well, and and also I want to rewind a second because the the argument in the piece was that I mean everything we're talking about, but but the but the ultimate point was uh, by taking the privileged out of the regular TSA line and giving them special treatment, we're reducing the political pressure to reform to make all the necessary reforms to the TSA, mm-hmm. um, which is a hypothetical on top of a hypothetical and also a ridiculous. It's not like the TSA feels plenty of political pressure to be less ridiculous. Um, yes. and, uh, I, I, don't think that taking, uh, what does he say? People who have a lot of political juice, um, putting them into a separate line is not going to change the political pressure or change the calculation for the TSA at all. If they've been immune to criticism for the last 10 years, um, there is no reason to think that, uh, that this is going to move the needle one way or another. Um, you know, real, real reform of the TSA is going to require significantly more. I mean, think about the number of like embarrassing scandals the TSA has been through since they started. Think about like the enormous amount of money we're pouring into them. Um, the TSA is, in a lot of ways, just a symptom of uh, this. You know, Bruce Schneier has written about this very eloquently, so I won't try and re-argue the point. But um, the TSA is really just a symptom of, of like a fundamentally broken way in which we're approaching the security problem. Um, mm-hmm. and, uh, <laughs> and charging people 85 bucks for a background check uh, is... Uh, that's arguing at the margins, right? It has absolutely nothing to do with this. It's a larger systemic problem. Yep.
1: So, like, as a 1% fat cat, do do you need to take your monocle off when you go through the pre-check line?
0: Yes, but they do let you keep the cigars in your brandy snifter.
1: Okay, okay,
0: good. Is Is it,
1: like but the, the brandy has, do you have to drink the brandy before you go in or it's,
0: it's required actually. Uh, it's oh, mandatory. Okay. Yeah. 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 Okay. Yeah. They give you a TSA approved brandy. <laughs> that's right. There's a guy there with a jigger and uh, dispenses <laughs> the brandy. So, they, you know, so, uh, so you're comfortable as you walk through the magnetometer, right? Uh, yes. yeah, you don't want to be, uh, you don't be all wound up before you get on an airplane. They want you to be comfortable in it. Thanks TSA for the free brandy. Yeah.
1: So speaking of dystopia, hmm. um, yeah more more let's let's cheer things up a little bit oh can we talk about zombies yeah right um so whenever you're not taking a, a klingon mooc, um there's now a mooc for the walking dead from uh uc Ir- irvine
0: awesome so what's the what uh what sh- what will i learn uh from this uh walking dead mooc?
1: I think it's like a, so what will happen is, well, it's running now that, you know, basically you watch the show on TV and then it's like, I, I don't know if it's discussion groups or a lecture afterwards and all that. But, but it's tightly coupled with the, the run of the show with, with the, the next week's assignments and lecture. Oh, interesting.
0: Say, so there's like tests I could take for comprehension?
1: I guess, yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's wonderful. There's cool. going to be a spinoff. There's a Walking Dead spinoff uh, that has been green-lighted. Oh, wait. oh, really?
0: Mm-hmm. A t- uh, I don't know about this. Tell me.
1: Yeah. So it's it's basically, I, I just saw this a little while ago, that uh, it's basically, it's the same author, was it Robert Kirkman? Um, and uh, he is, they are doing another series. It's the same universe, but just different people
0: somewhere else. Oh, Interesting. Oh, that's really good. Uh, have you read the books, Dave?
1: Yeah, the comics. Yeah,
0: yep. They're fantastic. They're really, yeah, yeah they're really wonderful. Um, if you've been watching the show and you haven't been reading the comics, you're doing yourself a disservice. Um, but,
1: but the comics are very adult oriented.
0: Yes, extremely adult oriented. Um, Which yeah. drives me crazy because it's
1: like I would go to the library and they would be in the young adult section. Oh,
0: and that's a yeah. terrible idea.
1: Oh, my gosh. And so it's like I would see it or whatever, and I, I would, you know, my wife or I would, would go and we would, you know, say it's like go to the library and say, look at this. You know, and mm-hmm. it's like, and, you know, whether it's the words or the pictures or whatever, it's like, uh, you know, I, I think the litmus test for young adult is that if the librarian can't say it out loud in the library, then it probably doesn't belong in a young adult. That's um, it, yeah. Yeah. That's good and and so there are things that it's like eh, no it's you, it's it's definitely not for youngsters
0: all right um what else we got oh hack reactor
1: yes, yeah, so um yeah, but so this is something that uh it's basically a coding boot camp um, that wants to be the c s degree of the future and so it's it's a twelve week long program which is kind of interesting it's it's literally it's um It goes from 9 a.m. to 8 p.m., and it includes physical exercise. Um, So it's, I guess, to to have like you know life balance or whatever, just so you know people don't get into the rut of you know sitting behind a a computer screen all day long. It's like, oh, well, we're going to do some classes and we're going to do some jogging over lunch, and then we'll we'll have lunch, and then we get back to classes, and it's project based and all that. But um, but my. You know, it's built as it's crazy expensive too. It's like almost eighteen grand uh, for a a twelve-week course Um, that's intense and long days. But um, but they, I I don't know if they literally guarantee it. But it's like there are people, Silicon Valley companies that are lined up to take the people that graduate from this. Um, And so even though it's expensive. You know being able the the return on investment and the and the payoff um should be pretty quick because you get hired by a silicon valley firm because they're they're really hurting for um, skilled uh, developers out there
0: um, wow. yeah so my, the, is is it designed to take people from zero to programmer
1: yeah it, and like, well it's it i think that you know they don't just like take anybody off the street hmm. because they don't want to you know like they don't want somebody to cough up. 18 grand and then wash out
0: Mm -hmm. um,
1: or, or not take it seriously. Mm -hmm. So I'm sure that they want to get the right people and interview them and all that. But, but I also don't think like, I worry, I I don't, you know, it's positioned as a CS degree of the 21st century, but to me, it's like, you can't, there, there are a lot of things that you need to know. um, yes. And, and so you can learn how to program like, like at, uh, you know, take some community college classes or whatever, but you're still not going to learn the theory behind it, like like how to do, like to me, compiler design, when I took a compiler design class, I learned not just how to program and how to build a compiler, but I learned how compilers work, and I write better code because I know how compilers work. Yes. Um, and those and there's a lot of the theory that I think you get in a formal computer science degree that, that I don't think you can get crammed into a 12-week course.
0: Yeah. No, I mean, I having, um, having not completed a CS degree myself, um, you given three months, I mean, there's, there's no way. I mean, all the, I'm thinking about like the data structures class about discrete math. I mean, there's uh, yeah, I mean, this is anyway, this is not the equivalent of a CS degree. Um, yes. that's, that's for sure. Um, and you're right that, uh, it, I think we draw too broad a circle. Sometimes we say like this person is a programmer. Um, mm-hmm. and in fact, there's a lot of different kinds of programmers with a lot of different kinds of skills, which are, uh, which are more or less valuable depending on what they're working on. Right. Um, so a programmer with a CS background is going to approach something very differently than a programmer with a strictly it background. Right. Yes. Um, yeah. Or, or
1: self-made, they bought a lot of O'Reilly books and mm-hmm. they may know how to write the programs, but it's almost like, you know, it's like, I don't know. It's like, like, taking an art class or studying art and, and the code it, it almost as an art form.
0: Yeah. 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 That's right. Um, <laughs> it's funny. I like how you mentioned artists cause we would never say that, uh, every artist who leaves our program is employed and makes a six figure salary. Um, mm-hmm. like you would never be able to say that because there's such a broad spread of different kinds of artists working in different ways. Um, so I mean the, just saying somebody is a programmer is, is equivalent to saying that somebody is an artist. Like it tells you almost nothing about what they actually do all day. Um, Right. Yeah. It's interesting. Um, But one thing I do like about this is that the, uh, I like a number of things about this, Um, uh, but 18 grand, a lot less than a four year degree. Um, Mm -hmm. And I like the idea of uh, experimenting with different educational models uh, to make it, to make a lot of this stuff more accessible to more people, Um, like kind of democratizing some of this. Yeah, uh, it's really I, great.
1: I was I was having a uh, I, I asked the uh, the remember when we talked about her ideas in motion um, mm-hmm. the 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 one to get uh, the group that gets ladies involved in in programming and and uh, and technical skills and arts and things. I was I I bounced this article off of uh, of uh, Rachel uh, uh, who who runs the organization. I said, well, what's your take on this? And mm-hmm. and we were both in agreement that. It's you know that it's like very much like we were talking is that you know a programmer and a software developer, but the other side of it though is that when I was doing the computer science degree, I was learning a lot about the theory, but not necessarily about the like how do you do a project, mm-hmm. or you know it's a lot of the soft skills that you may you may take a software engineering course, but it's like oh, how do you run a meeting how do you you know get or or like you may learn how to i don't even know if a computer science cor- curriculum teaches you how to do like git um but but even the philosophy of how you use git as part of a team or a larger team as opposed to n- an individual course that of you know' it's you writing a program in a particular language
0: yeah yeah it's it, there there's a lot of um, there's a lot of craftsmanship in in i t today along the lines of things like what are the uh idioms for Git usage as an example, or like how to contribute to an open source project. Right. Um, a lot of these things are undocumented and just kind of passed down in, 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 in tales and song, uh, from one school
1: of hard knocks. Yeah. yeah. By Linus. Yeah. Yeah,
0: Yeah. exactly. Um, yeah, it's interesting. Um, so there's all this kind of a base theory that you have to come in with. Um, but then even if you know how to use a particular tool or, um, Oh, I suspect it's the same in a lot of other kind of skilled trades. It's a trade, right? That's exactly mm-hmm. what it is. It's a trade.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, cool. Well, speaking of development, um, you found this about uh, Google releasing a Raspberry Pi web development teaching tool.
0: Yeah, it was, seemed like a uh, it seemed like a keyword bingo, right? Uh, kind of <laughs> touches on Google, touches on Raspberry Pi, touches on web development and teaching. And I was like, oh, what did, Dave must have written this. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah, it's a, so it's a project that, uh, Google released. It's called a uh, coder. Uh, and the basic premise is that it's, uh, uh, supposed to make it easy for kids to develop web applications, uh, on the Raspberry Pi. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so it's all based well, on my- HTML, CSS, JavaScript. Like there's nothing really fancy about it. It's just kind of a, uh, um, a package, um, that makes it, uh, that makes it simple and maybe a little standardized.
1: Yeah. But I wonder, it's like my wife sent me the same thing that, you know, I think it did hit all the the really hot topics, right? Like you (laughs) said. Um, But I wonder if, is that, that's one route to do it, but still you have to do some yak shaving to get there, right? Mm -hmm. You need to buy a Raspberry Pi. Mm -hmm. You need to download this operating system. You need to get it all installed. You get it all booted up. You probably have to get it networked. and and for you know kids or whoever that wants to learn how to do stuff like this, it's it's a lot of yak shaving. Yep. Um. And so, boy, wouldn't there be, wouldn't it be great if there was like a thing like a platform as a service where you could just log in and do open source coding and you know write applications on something that's already hosted?
0: Yeah. Oh, totally. And uh, I mean, <laughs> yes, yes, and uh, yes, OpenShift, our platform as a service, would be perfectly suited for this. But Dave, you know what? Someone should write. An article about how using a platform as a service is better for uh, education for educating kids and how it can accelerate the education process. Yeah, you're right. That, whoever does that would be like, that would be awesome. That guy would be like awesome. That guy would be awesome. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I, was, this is, I like this 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 joke arch uh, where we both uh, where we both uh, pretend to be ignorant of what the next item coming up is and then like. <laughs> Um, <laughs> it's a fun segue. I like doing it um yeah, so uh, it was published in a govtech magazine right or govtech online mm-hmm. yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. it's an article I wrote on uh how to use um uh, open source platform as a service um to to accelerate education, like using namely openshift so um instead of doing all that yak shaving you could you could start coding right away, so if you have a uh, like a web programming class where you got to talk to a database and all that. You can get that up and running in a matter of, of seconds and, and be able to get right to your homework. Um, and if you screw it up, we'll just blow away that application, create a new one and, and keep on going. So it allows you to, you know, fail faster and succeed sooner, try out new things and all that. It's, it's pretty cool.
0: Right on. That's great. Um, and then, uh, back to Yahoo. Yeah, back to Yahoo. Um, so one of my least favorite things about our our corporate security policy is the fact that I've got a t- I have to type in a PIN um, on my mobile phone in order to unlock it. Um, we yeah, can't, we as I recall, we can't even do the Android fancy swipey thing to uh, to unlock. Yeah. It has to be actually be a number. Um,
1: it's and it's every time too. It's every like a time, minute, yeah. Two minute um, grace period that you know it's like somebody's gonna knock you over the head. And, that's right. That's right. You know, it, in the next two minutes you know? mm-hmm.
0: and it's totally and at this point i don't know about you but for me it's like just muscle memory like i don't even know what the number is anymore
1: yeah uh, you, and you could probably look at the at the grease marks on your phone from where your fingerprints are and of, to figure the
0: the pattern out mm-hmm. yep yep that's right um so but what's a what's with yahoo
1: oh yeah so this is um the CEO of of Yahoo, uh, Marissa Mayer, uh, confesses that she doesn't use a passcode to protect her smartphone. Um, so it's um, <laughs> attention, it, Russian hackers. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so to me, it's you know she went to talk about basically saying that it's really you know passwords are, are really difficult to the point that even she doesn't use them. Um, but I wonder if that is um, the right thing for somebody to, you know, especially when, with all the cloud security stuff in the news, if that's the right thing to do or, um, you know, is there, like, a corporate IT policy and it's like, I'm sure that locking policy is applicable for, you know, for us, it's for everybody in the company.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, this is the, yeah, The this is a tricky thing about security policies is uh, they're really only as good as uh, so, now, Marissa Mayer, if you see her at a restaurant, uh, you know, she she better carry that phone with her everywhere she goes and keep her eye on it all the time because somebody could pick it up and uh, send an email and you know, order a big stock sale or something like that, right? Um, and yeah. Cause like a reparable harm, not just to uh, mayor personally, but also to the company, right? And um, shareholders. And yeah. shareholders. Uh, yeah, tricky. Uh, although I'm sure she is not alone. I, I don't want to pick on her. Um, there, it's a you know a common problem where somebody in an elevated position feels like rules don't apply to them. Um, and unfortunately, like they are precisely the kind of people whose data you are trying to protect. Right. Yeah. Um,
1: that people want the most. And, yeah, yeah. um, but I guess, you know, things like, have you checked out the new iPhone with the, the fingerprint? Um, <laughs> yeah. So I, how,
0: did you order that yet? Or I, did? yeah, no, I, no, I haven't ordered that. I was totally underwhelmed by it actually. Um, I, the fingerprint thing, okay, maybe that might be useful. Um, somebody had tweeted that, uh, uh, the NSA should be extremely grateful that Apple has designed a phone which will correlate uh, names to phone numbers to fingerprints. Yes. Um, it's like a free database just for them. Um, yeah, no, I, I'm not. I don't subscribe to that particular conspiracy theory. But um, I, fingerprints on the phone doesn't move the needle for me, um, unless my phone was a single source of identity for every website that I visited. Mm-hmm. right uh and i could unlock it with maybe a password and a thumbprint so something i know and something i have um mm-hmm. that would be interesting but uh, for now I'm, I'm content with my uh uh my one-time passwords on my you know hardware and software tokens and uh yep. and a conventional password that's totally fine with me
1: yeah Yep.
0: what about you are you uh, are you excited about uh, biometrics Do you want to scan your eyeball every time you want to <laughs> <laughs> I'll unlock your laptop.
1: Yeah, I'll keep it. Keep my eyeball in a jar or something. I don't know. Um, yeah, uh, we'll see how it goes. I, I think it's kind of interesting that 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 the finger. I think the interesting part is that Apple is. Uh, you know, companies I think are responding to you know the, the that passwords are probably becoming less and less useful, and mm-hmm. and we need something else. So. Um I know back in the day, you know, ThinkPads had the fingerprint reader but nobody really used it much. Um and you know, it was kind of so easy nobody could to get think. the drivers to work. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And um so, you know, it's like uh, to me I I always worry of of uh, you know what happens if my thumb gets cut off or whatever. I I don't know. Um but I'm sure there are, there are ways to get around that and send a password reset to my Yahoo account which got you know Bought by somebody else for a ninety nine, and
0: yeah, yeah. Um, yeah,
1: yeah. So, how many vials of uh, liquid cigarette did you go through on that oh. call?
0: <laughs> <laughs> Actually, you know what's funny about the liquid cigarettes is the uh, or the uh, the e-cigarettes is um, what I've noticed is that now I'm unencumbered when I'm especially when I'm home. Uh, I don't have to go outside anymore, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and so that means I am I can smoke. My fill, um, mm-hmm. and especially because the, it uh, this sounds terrible to say, but like it hurts less, right? Cause like I'm not getting carbon monoxide and the tar and all the rest of it. So, um, actually my nicotine intake is going up, which is alarming. Right. Um, yes. so I don't know. I got to figure out now I got to, I think I've just traded one set of problems for another. Uh, right. i are going to figure that out.
1: So are you going to dial that back?
0: I got, I got to figure a way to dial it back. And, and what's funny is, but you know how the brain works. Like I could move to a lower strength right now. I'm mm-hmm. on the 11 milligram cartridges. I could move down to, you know, something smaller, like zero even. Um, but what that would do because, uh, because, oh, because of the addiction, what that would do is um, force me to actually smoke more of them. Mm. So it it doesn't actually fix the problem. It just makes it more expensive. Yes. Um, and so, so you
1: need a higher dosage.
0: Oh, uh, well, you know, it's funny that you mentioned that because I tried that and the higher dosage, um, is, uh, it does make you smoke less, uh, mm-hmm. in, in terms of like draws. Um, but basically <clears throat> you the brain, my brain is already set for a certain number of milligrams of the drug a day. Right. Um, and with the higher thing, it's the, the higher strength is also <clears throat> definitely more painful, like, or causes more, mm-hmm. like I can. It makes my throat more scratchy, dries it out, you know, stuff like that. Um, so what? What if you did um,
1: like the uh, like the patch and yes. a zero or something like it's that? Funny, funny you mention that because that's sort a, of that's like, a, it's know, the, yeah exactly. So switch, that's get, yeah, get get the nicotine down and then mm-hmm. get the oral
0: uh, fixation part or whatever. Yep, that's uh, that's exactly right. So I so now. Um, and as a matter of fact, just a few hours ago, I resolved to do exactly that. Um, borrowing from my, my, my buddy, Doug Denny, who, uh, quit using this method, um, is, um, uh, going on the patch, uh, and then only using the e-cigarettes, uh, to, to handle the spikes or, you know, uh, as a palliative measure, right. Uh, rather than yes. a, rather than nicotine replacement. So we will see if that is successful. Mm. Anyway, uh, Cool. I might even splice that into the show. That was fun. Um, so, Dave, you met the great Dave A. Wheeler. Yes. yes, Do- Dr. Um, Dave A. Wheeler, I should say.
1: Right. Yeah. So um, it was it was interesting. So last week and this week, it was like mill OSS celebrity uh, discussions I had uh, in public. <laughs> uh, so it was pretty cool. So last week was a GovLoop um, uh, event where uh, I was on... Uh, presenting with David A. Wheeler and and Josh Davis, and what was interesting is while uh, David was presenting, um, he said that well, open source software is just software, and I was just like, oh, that's Helixon's <laughs> law, and I should have said it on the on the event so I could get the so we could get that in the Wikipedia article and, right. and help push that out. I should have done it, but but anyhow, I have a, a link in the, the show notes for that. Um, and then the next thing was. Um, uh, so this was today. So we're, we're recording on Tuesday, the seventeenth. Uh, I, I did a panel with uh, Dan Reisacker of of uh, of uh, uh, Milo SS fame as well, and um, that that was pretty cool, it was a cool panel. And after the panel, um, I was I was talking to him, and um, <clears throat> he's like, "Oh, I got an interesting story." And he said that, "Well, I you know I took my family to go see Burning Man." And 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 that right there you could just like end the story and it's like, wow, that's a cool story. You know, it's like you are taking your family out to, to Burning Man. That's that's like pretty awesome. And then um uh and he was talking to me about it and, and uh he said that there was uh he was talking to one of the organizers about the I guess one of the fireworks uh uh events that that are going on and he's uh, and the guy said that, Oh, well do do you know the fireworks guy? Um and and uh and Dan was like, no, I, no, tell me about it. And he said that, oh, well, this is like the most, the the world-renowned uh, pyrotechnic expert in the entire world. Like, he's like the top person in the world. His, his name's David X. He is like the top pyrotechnic <laughs> expert. And he's like, do you know David X? And and Dan was like, yeah. And, <laughs> and, and it wound up, it wasn't me. Um, but it, it was a guy that David with the letter X for his last name. Um, so that that was that was pretty funny. So he got to he got to see the fireworks and everything. So that was pretty cool. Getting his uh, re- recap from his uh, family vacation out at Burning Man.
0: That's amazing. That's amazing. Um, yep. <laughs> that's wonderful. Taking your family out to Burning Man. Um, yeah. that's I wonder if they went all the way on a scooter.
1: No, no. He did. He did take his scooter to uh, the event today. So, uh, uh-huh. he wrote it in and, and it, he said it was pretty cool. Cause it's like, since it's a 50 CC or a, or a smaller, he could park it anywhere like a bicycle. So it's like he parked it like on the sidewalk. Um, and you know, and he said like in DC, that's great. So that's
0: that's pretty cool. Oh yeah. That, that that does sound useful. That's awesome. Mm-hmm. That's great. Um, so I, last week I was at the, uh, North Carolina data palooza, mm-hmm. um, which there was no sign of the Beastie Boys, no Red Hot Chili Peppers. The roots weren't there. I was no Burning uh, Man. No Burning Man. I was misled. Um, apparently, it was just a bunch of people who like open data. Dan so. showed up with his family. <laughs> <laughs> <Sorry>. <laughs> Road trip to Datapalooza. Palooza. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so, it, oh, a great event. Um, and what's what's neat about the uh, there are a lot of open data events around there uh, 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 around the country and certainly a lot of uh, open government enthusiast groups um, or advocacy groups. What's unique about this is that it is actually a regional group. It's not tied to a particular city. Uh, mm-hmm. It's actually sponsored by like the Research Triangle um, organization mm-hmm. and, uh, and a number of others. Uh, I, can't, I don't remember all the sponsors right now, but the fact that an entire region of North Carolina has gotten together uh, to promote the use and reuse of of open data uh, was really, really neat. Um, so got to see the uh got to see the presentations of all the finalists um got to see the the, the winners um which was a, a parking application so this was a way to um help people find parking downtown which is uh, especially useful in a city like Raleigh um mm-hmm. where parking is at a premium um, the presentations were great uh i got to see uh the guy behind uh, uh how stuff works mm okay Um, that a fantastically popular web property. Um, He was really cool. Um, And uh, I got to see uh, uh, Ian Kalen from, uh, from Socrata who, who buttonholed me after uh, my presentation. Um, uh, I guess. All right. And then my presentation, uh, which uh, went off really well, I think. Um, Although they actually gave me the hook at the end. I've never had that happen to me before. They, uh, uh, they, they had a hard 15 minute limit, and uh, you know me, uh, it's very difficult for me to give a presentation any you know any shorter than about two hours, and so uh, yeah, they actually they they actually gave me the hook. It was a little bit humiliating, they, like cut,
1: cut your mic or hit a gong.
0: Or <laughs> <what>? No, Sandman <laughs> came out and started dancing a little dance. Um, Uh, they were, they were very polite about it. Um, and, uh, a little bit embarrassed that I ran over time because, you know, I do this for a living. I I shouldn't actually ever go over time, but, um, certainly got my point across, got a lot of uh, nice compliments about the presentation afterwards, which was nice, really cool group of people, very welcoming. Um, uh, Ian Kalin from Socrata who spoke, who gave the keynote before me, uh, actually buttonholed me afterwards and, uh, super nice guy. Uh, and he, then he, then he kind of needled me a little bit. He kind of Kind of shivved me, uh, rhetorically speaking. Um, he asked me, uh, uh, "Well, why is it so important to use open source software with uh, open data? Like, you can use op- you can use proprietary software with open data, right?" I was like, mm, "This is coming from a proprietary software guy, right?" Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, so I, I know my answer. Um, and remember, I have a blog post from uh, I guess about two or three years ago that I, I wrote about this topic. But uh, I don't know, Dave. What, what's your take on that? Is is open source software like important? Uh, is it useful? Is it irrelevant when talking about open data? What, what what's your take?
1: Well I, I think they go hand in hand. Where mm-hmm. you could you could definitely use you know closed source tools and I mean look at look at what people have done with Excel. Right? Mm-hmm. And right. but yeah, you know, what new innovation could you do beyond what is already in Excel right now? Um and, and I know people have done things with like Excel plugins and, and other things like that, but for things like, like big data and especially for like visualization, I, I think is huge of mm-hmm. taking something like uh, uh, you know, being able to map things and, and to be able to um, uh, you know, for somebody to take it and repurpose uh, a website or something that was done for one thing and then repurposing it for another, I think is pretty important.
0: There are a number of threads you can pick up in this discussion, but um, I, I think the point you made is, is excellent. Um, the idea of, you know, open source software is like in a, in a, a, uh, a creative system or a system that actually encourages innovation. Um, I think that's totally true. Um, but I think for open data in particular, where this is public data, right? Um, this is data mm-hmm. that you want as many people as possible to be able to use. Um, you don't want to release the open data and have it only be useful uh, by people with uh, a Microsoft Excel license, right? Yes. And, um, you want to you want to make it as, as kind of democratic as possible. Um, and I think that's another important, but so it's almost like a, uh, a moral argument, right? Um, in addition to the to the technical ones. Um, anyway, maybe I'll include a link to to my my full my fully fleshed out argument. Uh, I'll include that in the show notes. Uh, but it was interesting. It was, and I uh, actually appreciated Ian uh, coming up and talking to me about it afterwards. Um, again, super nice guy. So uh, thanks, folks at uh, Data It was a great time. Um, thanks for the opportunity to talk to all of you. Um, we'll see. And Then I'm doing the NIST cloud and. NIST Cloud Computing and Mobility Workshop uh, mm-hmm. in about two weeks. And on the, actually, I think on the same day, you're going to be at the Symantec thing, right? Yeah, we're going to be in the same town. Yeah, we might even see each other in person. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That'd be, that'd be, gonna be pretty cool. Um, and then the next week, I'm in Orlando for the Gartner IT Expo. Um, that'll be fun. I get to do like a, like a proper, like, you know, big industry. Like I get to do my TED Talk um, so that will be, that will be cool. Um, mm-hmm. I'm looking forward to that. Um, and then the Red Hat Government Symposium after that, right? Is it, do you have anything else in October?
1: I don't even want to look. <laughs> <I forgot>. <laughs> One <laughs> day at <laughs> a time. Oh, <laughs> that's right. That's
0: right. Um, all right, cool. Uh, so I saw a press release. We're doing, uh, we, we have new stuff we just released, right, Dave?
1: Yeah. Software collections.
0: Love it. I love software and I like collections of software, so I'm I'm sold already. Uh but do you wanna do you wanna give the do you wanna give the, the high points of the high points on this? Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, yeah. So with uh the so we have this technology called Red Hat Software Collections. And one of the gripes that oftentimes people have had about RHEL is that it's like, well it's cool that you support say like RHEL for ten years, uh, but that means that I gotta drag along my MySQL database for ten years and I can't update it within that Uh, Minor release, and a lot of times people want to have newer versions or newer features and things like that. And so now we are giving people an option, so they could ride out that version of Postgres or MySQL or PHP or Python or whatever um, for ten years on that particular version, or they could refresh on a on a more regular cadence where um, we will come out with uh, uh, refreshes er approximately every uh, eighteen months and then support it for. Uh, a three-year life cycle for each one of those releases. So we got new versions of Ruby, Python, PHP, Perl, a tech preview of Node.js, MariaDB, MySQL, and PostgreSQL. That's awesome.
0: Uh, The thing that's most exciting about this for me is not just that we're, like, offering like you said it's a big complaint that we have that we're like carrying around 10-year-old software um mm-hmm. in the in the distribution and, and we do it for good reasons right because we one of the big promises of RHEL is that it stays the same for 10 years and that's mm-hmm. that re- that requires a whole bunch of engineering effort um but it does make you know this newer stuff like node um and mariadb and stuff like that 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 makes them kind of Inaccessible. Um, and so being able to offer support for that stuff is, is pretty great. Um, the thing is most exciting about it for me though, is the idea that people can actually make their own software collections. Um, uh, because yes. I know, I know a bunch of customers who they're, they're building applications in house and they don't really have, there's no like approved or like well understood way of, um, managing the upgrade path for them or insulating that application against uh, updates with other components in the system. Right. You have to go through this, mm-hmm. like what, you know, famously like you have to go through this like dependency hell um, to figure out like, you know, well I update this application and now I got to update this version of the database, which means I've got to go upgrade this version of the crypto libraries or, you know, whatever it is. Um, software collections are a way of kind of insulating you against some of that. Um, and so yes. I'm going to be encouraging all my customers who do their own deployments or their own development uh, to take a look at software collections as like an improved way of uh, of distributing and bundling their software. Um, I think it's yeah, totally, un- totally
1: awesome. unfortunately we it's we're using software collections as an overloaded term where there's mm-hmm. Red Hat software collections, which is our build of the uh, you know the new versions of PHP and all that. Mm-hmm. Um, but then there's also the packaging methodology that we call software collections, where like you said, it's like that's how we bundle up python and php but that's also how uh, customers can bundle up their own version and and the way it works is that typically if you install like mysql it's going to put files in var and etsy and user bin user s bin all over you know all over the all over the system Mm -hmm. um and so you can't overlay multiple versions in the same location and so what we do is we'll have like an a slash opt slash Hat slash mysql or whatever directory and then everything underneath that directory would be a a self-contained version of a full-blown copy of mysql and then you change uh, some environment variables and and you're ready to go and that that will allow you to have multiple versions coexisting on the same system Mm -hmm. um, which is really cool yeah
0: yeah um no really exciting uh and long overdue. I'm, I'm delighted to see this actually of GA'd. Um, the same technology is what we use in uh, OpenShift, isn't it? Um, to, yes. Uh, uh, to allow people to install basically whatever version of MySQL they want or, you know, uh, whatever version of Node they want. Um, we, all, we do that with software collections.
1: Yep. And and the other thing um, is that, that the same week we came out with the uh, updated version of the developer tool set too. So it's mm-hmm. new versions of GCC and Eclipse and all that where, you know, I'm sure that's a welcome thing for people that, you know, you don't want to be using an old crusty version of Eclipse if, if you could help it. Totally, um, yeah. Yeah, and, and so getting that newer stuff is is pretty cool. That is so great. We'll put, yeah, we'll put links in for that. Mm-hmm.
0: Sounds good. Um, so uh, And then you found, uh, you know, <laughs> it's funny, working in government and working in DoD, we have like our own language, right? We have our own shorthand. Um, yes. and it's always a little disconcerting to see that language or that vocabulary being used outside of that context. Right. Um, mm-hmm. like if I see government slang outside mm-hmm. of, uh, outside of the government context, it's, it, yeah, it's disconcerting. Um, and so when you, you, uh, you said along this, uh, this tweet uh, from the, the Red Hat open account, uh, saying yes. emulate a common access card in a VM, like, wait, 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 wait. what are they doing talking about cat carts? That's crazy talk. Yes. Yeah. Um, so anyway what was this about
1: well this is um i thought it was pretty interesting uh somebody from uh in in gnome, uh in from uh, gnome they did a blog post on how they were basically able to um, instead of being able to pass a – doing PCI pass-through of a CAC card to uh, a virtual guest, Mm -hmm. um, which could be painful, especially if you're unplugging, plugging in, stuff like that. So from an engineering testing standpoint, being able to emulate that where you could basically – just store the cart, store the certificates and software and then be able to push that into the guest um, was what the blog post is about. So, you know, check with your security officer before you put it into production. But um, I thought it was an interesting uh, thing for people to check out.
0: Yeah, yeah, totally. Um, and speaking of two-factor authentication, uh, GitHub got two-factor, right?
1: Yeah, yeah. So that was really nice using uh, – I got that turned on uh, for um, – on my account, my GitHub account. Um, and it uses, uh, our favorite, um, uh, OTP, uh, you know, the, the standard is based one that, uh, Google and Microsoft and, um, uh, Red Hat and others use.
0: Oh, that's awesome. Uh, thankfully they didn't use, you know, uh, another goofy variation on the SMS thing or, um, uh, kind of mm-hmm. the right no. I can only keep track of so many two factor authentication methods. So it's nice that they stuck with the, uh, uh, stuck with the, uh, the mainstream, uh, it's great. Very cool.
1: Yeah, and they also have a neat um, page for, like, under the security settings. It, if you go to the, the I'll put a link in the, in the show notes, so if you have a GitHub account, it'll take this, take to your uh, um, login, but it'll show you, like, every time you logged in, you know, if you create a public key or you enable two-factor authentication, it's all logged. Um, so it's, it's a nice way to uh, keep track of, of your security history as well. So I thought that was pretty cool.
0: Oh, that's really interesting. That's, that's something I wish I had on a lot of other sites. Um, to mm-hmm. actually have like a, you know, because if you've ever been through, you know, CNAing a, a system, um, they always want to see your audit facility, right? Because um, yep. you always want to keep track of what, how you've changed what your security settings are, but also what the history has been and when they changed and who changed them and stuff like that. So that's really novel that GitHub would include that kind of security history information. That's great. What a good idea.
1: Yeah, it's, mm-hmm. it's nice. I, I just totally tripped over it. So I thought it was pretty cool.
0: Awesome. Uh, so does that mean your, your your Git learnings are advancing or proceeding apace? One day at a time. One day at a time. Fair enough. Yep. Uh, yep. <laughs> I, won't, I won't grill you on it <laughs> Um So did you see this uh, blog post from uh, Matt Mycini at uh, DLT?
1: Yes. Yes, I thought it was pretty good. Uh, tell us about it.
0: Yeah, so it's, uh, we talk about vendor lock-in all the time, you and me, and uh, he had this novel approach to the vendor lock-in question, which I really enjoyed, um, where he linked together the idea of technical debt and vendor lock-in. Mm-hmm. Um, so putting those two together, it, actually, it's a. Anyway, I don't want to. I don't want to rob him, uh, and I don't want to rob any of the listeners of the joy of actually uh, reading the thing by like recounting it over the you know radio. Um, but you should definitely go check out the blog post. Uh, a really smart and novel take uh, on the question of both technical debt and vendor lock-in. Um, so
1: as, as a teaser, what is what is technical debt? I'm sure we all understand what vendor lock-in is, but what is, what is technical debt?
0: Yeah, so, t- so technical debt is, uh, is when you make a technical decision um, that puts you at a disadvantage or that you have to kind of dig yourself out of later, right? Um, so as an example, one classic example of technical debt would be um, taking an open source project uh, and then forking it um, out of the mainstream, right? So once you fork that project, you have just incurred a whole bunch of technical debt, meaning that um, now, in addition to all the regular work that you wanted to do on that on your fork, um, now you have to also look over your shoulder and keep track of what's going on in the mainstream mm-hmm. and and maintain your fork uh, in alignment with the uh, with the mainstream right mm-hmm. um, and so that's technical debt um, and it's just like running up credit card debt. Um, you build up enough technical debt and eventually uh, it, eventually you get swamped um, and you can't buy your way out you got to go. <clears throat> declare bankruptcy and start over again um and so anyway he yeah, he links this idea to the notion of vendor lock in and saying that you know vendor lock in is actually like a flavor of technical debt, which is really interesting um so mm-hmm. anybody everybody should go check out his uh, his blog post up on the uh DLT website we'll include a link in the show notes hmm cool cool uh so I tried to tell the state of Texas where I live, and uh I gotta pay him eleven bucks for the privilege
1: nice. Yeah. What if you didn't? What if you didn't tell them?
0: Well, so in the past, this would not have mattered very much, right? I mean, how many people actually keep their driver's license address current? Um, mm-hmm. Not very many, I suspect. Um, especially, I remember in my twenties, I was moving around like every two years. Um, there was no way, you know, that I was keeping the the address info current. But um, now, with the uh, new voter ID laws uh, yeah. that have come in, now having my address on my driver's license uh, and uh, keeping my voter registration current, um, is important, uh, because it means that I'm actually going to vote in the right precinct. Mm-hmm. So went to go do the, went to go do that work. And, uh, yeah, they want to charge me 11 bucks. And, uh, but what was funny is they say we're charging you $11, but, uh, the $11 goes to Texas.gov, the website I was using and not the DMV. Hmm. I was like, wait a minute, who am I to? And then I realized like, Oh, Texas.gov is outsourced to a service provider. And so they're actually charging money in order to quote unquote recover costs. In addition to whatever money they're getting from the state to actually run the website, they get to now charge citizens for using services on the site. Hmm. Um, so I was appalled at this. Uh, and when, you know, whenever I get indignant, I go straight to Twitter and announce my displeasure to the world. And mm-hmm. I actually got a response from Texas. Gov Twitter account who, oh. uh, yeah. Uh, who helpfully told me that, uh, uh, it's actually 10 bucks to update the address. And that actually does go to the DMV. Um, only $1 goes to the service provider, ah, which okay. took, it took a little bit of the sting out of it, but still like 10 bucks to go like print up a new card. That seems like that should be included in taxes. You know what I mean? That doesn't seem like you should be able to do cost recovery on that. Yeah. Yeah. yeah or yes, you could have
1: just, won-
0: yeah. I mean, especially if you want people to do it. Right. Right.
1: <laughs> right. Yeah. Uh, um, yeah. And, and to keep things up to date and mm-hmm. all that, um, Yeah. Or you, so so you went to like the Texas.gov website and provided your name, address, birth date, and last four digits of your social security number. (laughs) That's right.
0: That's right. And my mom's maiden name, which I thought was weird, but you know, okay, Um, (laughs) yeah, yeah, just so. Um, It is funny how you and I, you know, we spend a great deal of time thinking about what kind of information we're handing over to private entities, um, Mm -hmm. and very and a relatively little time thinking about how much information we're handing over to uh, a government. Anyway, interesting how the brain works, right?
1: Yeah, well, and also it's like you know they have a dumpster outside that has a printout of all that stuff, and yeah. it may not get shredded or <laughs> right. you know, just like a regular company or whatever. Yeah, so,
0: yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah. Um, so you came up uh, the word of the week haptography. Tell me, tell me about you found this. I'd love it. Um, t- tell me more haptography.
1: Yeah. So, um, so just the same way that you, uh, so think of haptography as haptic uh, photography. So uh, haptic meaning touch, and so um, just how like you take a picture or a photograph of something to get a visual record of something. Haptography is um, the way to record the way something feels. Crazy. Yes. So it's like you could imagine for uh, who knows, like some extinct animal uh, or some or or soon to be extinct animal. Um, you you want to know how that. The, the panda fuels or whatever, if you pet it, or for medical. Um, uh, like, so in my <clears throat> in my experience, like before, like back when I got out of college, I, I did a lot with virtual reality. Mm-hmm. Um, and haptic feedback was always something that was very, very difficult. Uh, it was very compute intensive. and um, But it was really cool, like from a force feedback, haptic feedback, where, where you could actually feel a surface, whether it's like rough or smooth or um, you can get a little pushback and all that. Um, so I, I thought that was pretty cool. And so um, it's an interesting article you could check out where um, not only did they want to have this record of how things felt, um, you know, just like how you could, um, you know, you see like these old time pictures from 100 years ago or whatever, um, you know, you, whatever it is, you could, you could get a, a record of how things felt. Um, but it also has applications for things like uh, medical use. So if you want to do like a surgical simulator and you want to know whether you're cutting into cancerous tissue versus um, normal healthy tissue, um, mm-hmm. you can get a feeling of that. So I, th- I thought it was pretty cool to be able to have a, a catalog
0: of how things feel. Bananas. Um, yep. And it's something straight out of a William Gibson novel. Yes.
1: Yes, exactly. So cool.
0: Yeah. <sighs> all right well i'm obviously losing my voice dave um and you need to get to bed uh because yeah I need some rest you're rocking four hours of sleep right now um all right so uh, there's a bunch of great stuff on the cutting room floor and if people want to read matt's essay um if the, they want to learn more about software collections um if they want to see uh where you and i are speaking over the next month uh, where do they where do they go for something like that
1: yeah, or how to send your teeth to the tooth fairy using a Raspberry Pi and pneumatic tubes. Um, <laughs> they want to go to uh, dgshow.org So D's and Dave, G's and Gunner show.org. Great.
0: Alright, uh, well thanks everyone. We'll see you next week. Thanks. thanks.